It's also good. It's been a great day. We had uh, two uh, sisters in Christ this morning uh, ask for prayers for greater strength, and uh, there was also a baptism. Some of you may have already left uh, before that had occurred, but there was a baptism this morning as well, and and that's uh, that's great. Uh, That's what we're trying to do. The purpose, uh, part of the purpose of assembling together, of course, is to praise God, but it's to strengthen each other. We could have done everything that we do. We could do that in our own home. I can sing at home and I can pray at home and I can get some juice and some bread at home and do it all to myself and by myself. But God sees a purpose for us coming together. And that is strength and the, the fellowship that comes and the encouragement uh, to do better. We need to be together. It is it is a great strength, and so that that's a great way to to begin the week. When I two weeks ago, when we moved here, uh, I asked that I asked a couple things of you. I asked number one, or I wanted to say thank you uh, for being so patient in in the length of the move and how long this transition has taken. You waited eight months before we could actually finally get here, and so I appreciate that. I also ask for prayers, not just for me, but prayers for this church, that God open doors and and give us doors of opportunity that we can walk through. And then I ask for cooperation. I, I want us to understand, and I think we do and do well, that we are a priesthood of believers I'm not the clergy here. I'm not the preacher. And, and there aren't a set number of guys here that are the, the priests in this congregation. Peter said, we all as Christians are a royal priesthood. And as royal priests, we have a priestly duty, a priestly obligation. And I'm telling you, if we pray for God to open doors for us, And if we will all pick up and do our part as priests in the kingdom of God, we can do great things here. And you have in the past, and I believe the future is bright as well. This morning we talked about revival, and I want to continue that thought this evening with you. Revival is not a bad thing. I know, again, and as we said briefly this morning, some kind of are reluctant to to use that word because maybe it implies that we're on the downgrade or that we're dying or or fading out. But listen, folks, let's be honest. That sometimes happens to us. There are times when we just feel weary and the, the zeal and the zest and the fervor that we once had, we don't have anymore. And so we need to be revived. For years and years, we've sung the song, Revive Us Again. And I really like Light the Fire. Uh, I can't sing that song without getting chills uh, because of the message uh, in that song. We need to be alive. I also know that the Bible tells us that this half-heartedness, this going through the motions of religion just isn't going to cut it with God. He, He expects and demands more of us than that. And so I need to, and if I find myself in a place in life where, as we talked about this morning, for example, worship has become a weariness to us, 
When we get to the middle of the week and we're saying things like, oh great, I've had such a hard week, now I've got to get ready and go to church, go to Bible study. Oh great, tonight's Wednesday. Of all weeks, for, of all days, I've had such a hard day. When we can go from there to this, oh great, it's Wednesday. I've had a terrible week this week. I'm so thankful that it's Wednesday because of the encouragements and the strength that we can get from studying God's Word. We need to have a passion for Christ and for His kingdom. And if that is waning in us, then we need to fix that. Because those who have lost their first love, and Jesus, or God, talked about in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2, He said, I remember when you were, you, you were young and the good things that you did. And I remember when you were like one who was betrothed. You act different now. I wish we could get that back. And maybe that's where you are tonight as you sit there. You say, you know, I, I remember when I was baptized and I remember the zeal I had and I wanted to set the world on fire. But I, I don't know what happened, but I don't feel that way anymore. I'd like to get it back. I want to want to, but I don't know how. Well, I think the answer can be found in a number of places in Scripture, but let me draw your attention to two things tonight, and the lesson will be yours. First of all, and this is still introduction, but turn in your Bible to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. I'm sure you've heard the passage read before. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, and notice the things he says we need to do, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God said, if my people will do just these three things, if they'll humble themselves, if they'll turn from their wicked ways, and if they'll seek me and my face, they have my full attention. I will heal them. I will forgive them. I'll heal their land. Folks, that's exactly what we need to do. If you find yourself in a situation where you just your relationship with God is not what it ought to be, right there's the remedy. Humble yourself. Uh, realize that it's not the God that has moved. It's not God that's changed. It's you that's changed. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you've not been up to par. Turn from wicked ways and seek God's face, His will, and, and God will be with you. There's an interesting statement. You know, we talked about fire. We've sung a couple songs about fire. And, and in the Old Testament, the imagery we used this morning, the, the sacrifice that Elijah made on Mount Carmel, how the God sent down fire from heaven and consumed and let everybody know that he was with them. We maybe need to rekindle the fire within ourselves. Maybe it has come to a flicker and is about to die. And maybe it needs revived. Every flame needs refueling or it will eventually die 
And that's true of the Christian as well. But fire is an appropriate symbol. Throughout Scripture, fire has been a symbol of God's presence. And so when we talk about, you know, lighting the fire and, and being on fire for the Lord, that's, that's really appropriate. Throughout Scripture, you can begin in, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, when God appeared to Moses and said, you're going to be the deliverer. In that burning bush, he appeared as fire to Moses. On the Mount Sinai, or Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, uh, this is when God spoke to Moses, delivered the Ten Commandments, but the whole mountain was on fire and smoke ascended day after day. Again, the presence of God was denoted by fire. The dedication of the temple, when Solomon built the temple that David, his father, wanted to build, when it was finished, God sent down fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that was on the altar. The presence of God. Then again, you can read in, of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, how he sees this, this fire coming, and it was the presence of God that he was witnessing. And then again, the priests in Leviticus chapter 1 were told to never let the fire go out on the altar. Never let the presence of God uh, depart. Fire is an appropriate symbol for God's presence. And so when I say we need revival and we need to light the fire, that's an appropriate, that, that imagery is, is certainly appropriate. But how do we do that? I want to give you three things tonight. Very simple, hope you can remember them, but three things that we need to do in order to keep ourselves revived and to be on fire for the Lord and not to settle for the humdrum and the going through the motions and just doing things rotely. We need to feel the, the emotion of one who is betrothed. We need to feel the emotion of one who is young and in love. That's what God spoke of in Jeremiah 2 and verse 2. So how do we light the fire in our life? Well, here's what we do. First of all, we have to realize that revival requires three things, at least three things. One of those things is that revival requires hard prayers. If you have your Bible, open it to 1 Kings chapter 17, because we'll look at this and use this for the text for the rest of the evening. But 1 Kings chapter 17, this is a period of time in Israel when Ahab is king. That's not a good time period. Ahab was a wicked king. He was married to a wicked wife, Jezebel, and some of the things that they did and, and perpetrated on the people of God, just horrendous. How do you bring about revival when from top, from the top you have corruption? Well, there was a man living at that time. His name was Elijah. He was a prophet of God. And he was trying to bring about revival. He was, well, at one point he thought he stood alone in this work, but God corrected him in that. But here's what it takes to have revival. In, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew 
nor rain these years except by my word. You know what Elijah prayed? He said, Ahab, it won't rain until I say so. Now, we learned that it was three whole years before it rained again, and the Lord told him to pray. That's a hard prayer to pray. Do you not know what you're doing when you say that, Elijah? That's a difficult. Do you know how many people are going to suffer because of what you've just said? What do you mean you're not going to let it rain for three years? Do you know what that will do to our economy, our crops? How will people survive? How will the widows and the children survive? How will they be fed? Where will we get our water? How will our livestock live? No water, not even so much as dew on the ground. You're cursing this place. You're bringing barrenness to the people of God. That's a hard prayer. But that's exactly what Elijah prayed. I pray that there be no rain. I pray for hardship and calamity and difficulty. Why would he pray for that? Do you think it's true that some people won't change their ways until they're forced to change their ways? Do you think there are people that will never change until they hit rock bottom? Some people you cannot help until there's no farther that they can fall. They are at the very bottom. They are crushed by their sin and nowhere else to turn. And then and only then can they look up for help. Elijah realized that. And he said, listen, if it takes crushing us, then Lord, do it. We're, we're ready for it. We need it. What we need is to be so burdened by sin that we're willing to pray those kind of hard prayers. I don't know how many people are absolutely devastated by their sins like David was. When you read the confessions that he makes in the book of Psalms, it cuts him to the heart. He is devastated by the choices that he made. And then in contrast, we might find light and frivolous confessions made on our parts. What we may need is are prayers that are difficult prayers to pray. Sometimes we need to be made so miserable in our present condition, so miserable by our sins, there's no place else to turn but to God. When you're trying to help people sometimes that have substance abuse and and they won't acknowledge they have a problem, and you see it, everybody sees it, but they don't see it. You can't help those people until they come to a point where they humble themselves and say, I need help. Oh, it's painful to watch. It's, it's hard to, to watch them hit rock bottom. But that's sometimes what it takes for change. If we want revival, we have to put away our desire. Lord, I don't want anything to happen to my economy. I don't want anything to happen to my bank account. I don't want anything to happen to... Moms and dads have some prayers to pray for their children that are scary prayers. 
If you have children who aren't faithful, are you willing to pray hard prayers? Lord, there's nothing more important to me than the salvation of my son or daughter. Do whatever it takes in your knowledge, in your infinite wisdom, to make them see the light, to help them to turn around. Maybe there's wives or husbands who need to pray hard prayers for their spouses. We need to pray and and let God do His work. But we need to be willing to place it in God's hand. Revival calls for hard prayers. But not only that, it, it calls for hard preaching. Turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah meets King Ahab. And uh, if you begin in verse 17, it happened that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? See, this is the man who's just said, It's not going to rain. And there's not even going to be so much as dew that comes to the ground here. And I'm the cause of it. Because we need a change. And so when he meets up with Ahab, Ahab says, Oh, there you are, you big troublemaker, you. And Elijah says, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel for 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. He calls for a confrontation. I love to preach about heaven. I love to preach about encouragement and those things that when we can leave, we we feel good about ourselves. And those are great things. And we need to do that. That's part of preaching. But as was read just a few moments ago from 2 Timothy chapter 4, that part of preaching is also reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. Part of it is correction. Part of it is challenging that which is sinful and what, that, that's wrong. If we want revival, we, we don't want popular preachers. We want preachers that don't just tickle the ear, but who will tell the truth. There was a time in the days of Jeremiah the prophet where the priests and the prophets would prophesy, Peace, peace. Everything's fine. We're doing well. And Jeremiah said, there is no peace. They're lying to you. And worse all, you love to have it so. You like to listen to it. But they're not telling you the truth. I am wholly opposed to those who would use the Bible as some kind of a club and just pound people into the ground. The Bible, Jesus never did that. The prophets of God's Word never did that. I'm not saying we need preaching that just is ugly and mean-spirited and confrontational in a sense that uh, we just like a good scrap. Because I I lost the taste for that many, many years ago. That's not to say, though, that we won't stand for the truth. We need to stand up for what the Bible teaches. We need to teach the truth. And we need to teach it without compromise. We need to be plain. And we need to address present needs. That's how we have revival. 
If I preach about things that never approach or uh, address the issues that this congregation has, then what value am I here? If I preach about things that happen way off in Timbuktu, but never approach us, of what value am I? I think that my job as a preacher is to share with you things that we need to know, things that we need to improve on, ways in which we need to walk closer to the commandments of God because of observation and experience that we have. And we need to be a church that can accept instruction that is intended for our good. And if you have a church that will listen to the Word of God, and you have someone who will preach it in love and with compassion, there's nothing but good that will come from that. If we want revival, we need prayers to be prayed that are sometimes difficult. We need sermons to be preached that the world might think is difficult. And then third, we need hard prescriptions. I find it interesting. I told you, and I guess I'll make reference for a little while, because going to Israel earlier this year was just really an an amazing thing for me. I, I can't tell you how it puts certain events, Bible stories in perspective. As we stood on Mount Carmel where this confrontation took place, and you get to this point and you look down over and you see this brook running right below the, the mountain. I couldn't help but envisioning what transpired after the confrontation. Most of us know about the confrontation, how that Elijah taunted and, and sarcastically said to the prophets of Baal, uh, maybe your God's hard of hearing. Maybe he's taking a nap right now. Maybe you just need to yell a little louder. He may be out for a walk. You know, who knows? And they began crying out and cutting themselves and all these vain repetitions of trying to get their God's attention. They had no success. We know the story and how that Elijah prayed to God and fire came down from heaven, burnt the offering and the water, it lapped up all around it. That's the story. But listen to the rest of the story the prescription that Elijah gave the people. 1 Kings chapter 18, begin with me. Uh, as Well, verse 22 beginning, but we won't read the whole chapter. But after Elijah, Elijah's prayer was answered, listen to the prescription that Elijah, Elijah offers in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. You know, when I stood on Mount Carmel, and I looked down, and I could see that little brook running right there by the foot of the mountain, I imagined the scene of these people walking these 400 prophets of Baal down there and taking their life right there at that, that brook. Somebody says, wow, that's just a little over the top, isn't it? I mean, you think he went a little too far, a little too fanatical? I mean, you didn't have to kill everybody. I can see people 
having problems with the prescription that Elijah offered. But if you want to be rid of sin, you get rid of it. You don't keep it in your closets. God knew the hearts of these They were wicked, idolatrous men who were worthy of death in God's eyes. And He had them put to death. You know, years ago, when Kim and I first got married, we, uh, we had a decision to make one time. We got in the living room, we were sitting, talking about our music collection. We had uh, albums, you know, we, we didn't have CDs or anything like that, but we had all these albums. And some of them were not the best albums. And we decided, well, what are we going to do? We're going to keep this music that doesn't honor God. Um, or are we going to get rid of it? So I started pulling out some of my albums and saying, this is, this is bad. This is bad stuff. I, we don't need this. And, and we threw a bunch of what? And she went through hers. Hers need to be thrown away just because of the, the nature of the music she listened to. But uh, it, she didn't have the objectionable content maybe. That, but we, we got those things together and we said... We're going to be serious about this. There's, this isn't wholesome. So we got rid of it all. It reminds me of those disciples in Ephesus who came to the Lord, who at one time dabbled in witchcraft. In Exodus, or Acts chapter 19, you know what the Bible says? They all got their books and they had a big bonfire. They, they wanted completely to cut off from those things. They don't want them there to entice and to, to tempt every day where they can easily just pick it up again. Listen, if we want revival, there are some hard choices we have to make in life. Some of them may be, I can't run with these same people that I used to run with because I'll never change them. This is who they are, and it's tempting, and I know that eventually it may not happen today or tomorrow, but down the road, I'm going to be right back there doing the same things that I used to do. It's just the way it works. I need to make changes. There may be changes that you need to make in, in other areas of your life. The point is, you have to put sin to death. You have to remove it from your life. And that's what Elijah was demonstrating with the prophets of Baal. We can't keep these men around just to pull you right back into what you're leaving. We need to make a cut. If we will pray hard prayers and say, God, open doors, use whatever means it takes to turn us around, if it means that I must be crushed, if it means that I'm going to be uncomfortable, if it means that I'll experience things that are unpleasant, if it will mean that I come back closer to you and have more zeal and fervor for your cause, then bring it. We need to pray hard prayers. We need to preach hard sermons. We need to address people where they are. And tell them what's right and what's wrong. We need to call people out of sin. Sin's not a bad word. In some places, you can't talk about sin. You, you don't want to offend people. I'm of the opinion that we can talk about sin 
and not be mean and ugly and hateful. I think we can have a person's best interest at mind and call them out of sin to a better way of life. And we need hard prescriptions. We're going to have to make some changes in our life. Things that hold us back, that hinder us, that, that continually trip us up. If we can't deal with those things, well, what did Jesus say? If your hand causes you to offend, cut it off. That's the idea. If we can't deal with something and can't manage it, don't do it. Get rid of it so that you can live a full and dedicated life. The question is not whether revival can occur today. The question is, do we have the courage and the faith in God to pray hard prayers, to preach hard sermons, to teach others the truth of God's Word, and to accept those hard prescriptions. If we do, we will see revival. Now, we're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you're going to use a songbook, go ahead and get it and pull it out now. Because, you know, during, during an invitation, this, this is what the sermon, this is where the sermon culminates. This is what it's all about. We, we present a message and we want people to respond. And oftentimes there are key words that a preacher will say like, well, in conclusion, and then you hear, you know, all the songbooks coming out and and purses snapping shut and people getting their jackets on. And and the it, it nullifies the very purpose of the sermon. So if you get everything you need right now ready, listen, Jesus invites you to come. And we here together, in Revelation chapter 22, the Bible says not only does the Spirit invite you, but so does the bride. That's you. That's me. You may be here tonight and you know that you need to make changes. I want you to know that we're here for you. The Spirit and the bride say come. If you need the prayers of your brethren to be stronger, if you want the fire relit in your life, and you want to begin anew today and say, I want to do better, we'll pray with you to that end. If you're a child of God already, but, uh, or if you haven't obeyed the gospel yet, why don't you begin? Why don't you let God add you to his family as one of his children by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins? I love what John says when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Can you imagine that? God will own you as his own if you'll humble yourself, turn from your wicked ways, and seek his face. If you're here and you need to do that, won't you come as we stand together and sing?